I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Hey guys, Tim here. If you think that all movement needs to be improved via laying on the ground positional breathing drills, think again. There are myriad ways to improve a client's movement to improve fitness outcomes while sidestepping pain, and our guest today is an expert in them all. Join Michelle and I as we sit down with Lance Goyke, remote trainer, site developer, and content marketer extraordinaire. We discuss the absolute joy that training me was for both Lance and Michelle, how to approach training and fitness when dealing with chronic and persistent pain, improving position and movement with local muscular endurance and systemic conditioning work, and navigating the thorny world of developing an online presence as an up-and-coming trainer. A little bit more about Lance from his website. Lance is a personal trainer based in Arizona working remotely with private clients. He received his Master's of Science in Anatomy and Cell Biology from Indiana University School of Medicine in 2017, as well as a Bachelor's in Kinesiology from Indiana Indiana University in 2012. He's a certified strength conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. A direct quote from Lance, the human body astonishes me, making it easy to enjoy perfecting my craft, but the real driving force behind my career has, without a doubt, been my extreme luck. I got my start as the model for a DVD my bosses, Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman, did with Eric Cressy called Assess and Correct. I've been able to foster relationships with some of the greatest up-and-coming trainers during their tenure as interns in Indy. I've never been short of information to digest. I like learning, thinking, and being happy. As another great Lance once said, I only have good days and great days. Tim again. Lance is a truly unique mind when it comes to bridging the seemingly disparate gaps between anatomy, biomechanics, psychology, marketing, and technology. And this discussion highlights the joys of producing this podcast, that I get to have discussions with great minds like his. So without further ado, I bring you Lance Goyke. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, is assembled in the USA and delivers a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit ancoretraining.com and get 10% off your Anchor Pro order when you use the code MTLP at checkout. Anchor, train without limits. Mr. Lance Goyke, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, I am. about me? I, I'm, you didn't well, invite no, me. Gonna, <laughs> no, I was, kidding, was going to. I was going to say. I'm just so. I'm. I'm so honored to be joined by my past trainer, Dr. Michelle Bolin, and my even pastor trainer, Mr. Lance Goyke. Yeah, this is uh, this is very circular. Whatever is going on here, but hi, Michelle. Hi, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very unique situation for Tim. I mean, I felt like the first couple minutes we have to at least talk about what it's like to train Tim. <laughs> I, I mean, that. I think that this this was going to be the premise for the entire episode, right? It was just going to be a debate between who enjoyed themselves more during the couple years that you each trained me. <laughs> uh, should I start? Uh, I guess I'll start. Um, 
Tim, Tim is a unique individual. Uh, I would say that I tend to train people who kind of know what they're talking about. Um, and Tim is not one of those. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Tim, Tim knows what he's talking about, but he's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I ran into the same thing actually. Uh, so years ago, uh, you know, maybe a little bit after you and I started working together, Tim, man, that was a long time ago. Uh, 2016. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so around then I, I ran into similar stuff where I got really, (laughs) if this surprises you listeners about Tim, so be it, but I got really analytical about stuff like Tim generally is. Um, and I really dove into the weeds and I would say that made me less healthy as a person, (laughs) but a better coach. Uh, <laughs> and that was kind of my experience uh, talking to Tim was, uh, you know, I became a better coach because we got to have a lot of long conversations about the ins and outs, the details, what matters, what doesn't matter about training. No, but what I will say is, and I, we're not going to make this a, you know, a, a referendum on the joys of coaching me. We'll get to something substantial, but <laughs> um, I think, you, you know, you were the first trainer I'd ever hired. Like up until that point, I was jotting my workouts down on a piece of paper from like, you know, 2009 to 2016. And it was just, it was such a tremendously helpful process to just have a brain that wasn't my own brain that I trusted actually put something down on a piece of paper and forced me to be somewhat consistent with it for a four week or six week period. And I think that, you know, while I had originally sought you out, Lance, because of some blog posts that you had written, that led me to believe that you were both well-versed in this PRI, Bill Hartman stuff, but also had a good mind about you when it came to actually structuring real exercise and getting jacked and getting strong and all things that I really, really wanted, you know, five or six years ago. Um, What it ended up being was, I I think you became really useful in simplifying some things that, that in my mind seemed very, very esoteric, very complex, very hard to actually apply to training um, and getting me not to overthink so damn much. Like I credit, when I design client programs these days, I, I go out of my way in some drills with some clients to say, I don't want you to think here. Like you're not allowed to think and you're not allowed to feel. I just want you to try hard. And I, I remember that was just something that you said to me quite a bit. Like, look, man, a, a deadlift is not the place for you to be feeling a left hip shift. Just <laughs> fucking grip the weight and like try hard here. <laughs> I think I, it's evolved to like, you know, you put your, you put clients into buckets, into um, like repeatable systems that happen over and over. So you got some who get hurt all the time, like all the time, like anything, like they have weird injuries and they keep coming back up. Um, and for those, uh, you know, you can, you can think a little bit more. That's, that's okay. Um, there's the bucket where, I don't know, uh, my opinion is that sometimes back in, you know, 2017, when Tim, you're trying to do a hip shift in something like a, a like a deadlift, it's really easy to overload that left hip joint and then you have left hip pain. So I don't know that that's another bucket. Or, but a lot of people, a lot of people are the types of people that you write a program for them and they don't do it unless you're there, <laughs> you know? So I think a lot of exposure to that changed my perception a bit and made me say, okay, I got to eliminate all this work because it's not doing anything for them. And it's just driving me insane, making me resent them. Uh, and you know, so I don't know, I try to streamline things. 
I do want to put a pin in that because I think that's something that these days I'm incredibly interested in because you're right, like those three buckets all have wildly different problem sets and wildly different solution sets. And like only in one of them, maybe two of them would the utility of like a 90-90 Henny bridge be apparent. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Michelle, before we cap off this entirely egocentric introduction to the podcast, any uh, any notes regarding regarding training me for the year or two after the dear Lance Goyke had me. Please. Yeah, I, Lance definitely set you up very, very well. I think that was my first kind of introduction to Lance of like who he is. Um, no, I, I remember you were pretty much the first person I've ever really worked with who did actually like know what they were doing. And they were very like demanding in some ways of like, I want to figure this out and you better have some like ways to do it. <laughs> But what I did appreciate is like every session was kind of like an exploratory session where we had some ideas jotted down and we figured out what works best. And then I kind of put it on paper, which was fun for me. But it did take me probably a few months to be like, yeah, I could actually like really just hang out with this guy. (laughs) Yeah. Then we started playing spike ball. Yeah, exactly. and to, again, just to expand on that and something that's a little bit more generalizable and useful for our listening audience, that is how I structure my, I, I don't even want to call it remote training, but like my training for people that are in Denver now looks like what you and I used to do for me, where I will write them the program, but instead of them doing every single session with me, we just meet a couple times during that program so that I can see like at week two, what they've made these drills look like. And then at week four or week six, how they've progressed and where we ought to go next. And that was something, I mean, we kind of figured that on the fly. Like that wasn't anything that I think you or I went into that experience having a plan for. And I think that's one of the biggest differences between like remote coaching and in-person is in-person allows you to explore a little bit more, change things up and be a little bit more flexible. I, I kind of struggle a little bit unless my clients remotely are sending me videos it's hard to make those adjustments and changes. Well, it's also kind of like, and Lance, feel free to jump in here, but with the pure remote personal training where the service that a person's paying for is the training session and not the training program, then correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think they would tend to be in that third bucket that Lance mentioned, where it's like people just don't do their stuff unless you're literally watching them do their stuff. And in that case, they're paying you to solve a different problem. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. There, again, yeah, I mean, lots of, lots of these different things will, will help. And even, even somebody, you know, like Tim, who kind of has, you know, the lay of the land, knows the program, knows how to do the exercises for the most part. Another thing that you don't, if you don't train that person live, one of your mm-hmm. weaknesses there is you don't, you don't see how they respond to the volume of the program. Um, which, which can be a huge deal for, for some people. Um, there's, I think I've seen it on the internet a lot that remote coaching is much harder, um, but I don't know. It, it's definitely difficult, um, but it's mostly just different. Like if I'm, if I'm coaching live, I don't do any in-person stuff anymore, but I coach on Zoom now still. Um, and even seeing that live, you don't have to prepare quite as much. Like you write a program every month or whatever. Um, and then you adjust as you need to, obviously, but I don't need to, <laughs> to try to iron out every little detail where I think you're going to mess up. 
Um, I can just kind of wait for you to mess up and then fix it if it comes by. So th there's less work in that, but you know, you have the the demands of scheduling and everything. I don't know. I, I like the idea of a hybrid model where you're part remote and part live. Definitely. Yeah, I thought I thought that was the best thing when I did we uh, Tim and I worked together is he would come in, you know, once a month, go over things, mess around with a few things, make some adjustments, and then he would go off on his own to do it. Yeah, I wasn't even planning on this being like a, you know, extolling the virtues of that of that mixed model. But I mean, I think the big reason that that was attractive to me was that I had a lot of a lot of confidence that you were the right person to solve a few different problems I was having with my own training. But then I didn't have the the capital to pay you, you know, to train with you a couple of times every week. Sure, sure. And, no, and it's, it's, it's great that way. That's another positive for, you know, various clients. You can reach more people that way. Yeah. And I remember uh, Lance, like early on in, in us working together, you had mentioned, you're like, man, you're easy to work with because it's basically just training myself a year in the past. <laughs> and, you know, I, I look at a lot of my training roster now and it's like, I'm basically just training versions of myself at, at various different points in my past. And that's, that's a, that's a really, really nice place to approach that. Um, but I probably wouldn't hit that if the only offering that I had was twice a week virtual training at $99 a session or something that would, that mm -hmm. would price you out of a certain market. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It, it definitely narrows the, the number of people that you can reach, but you, you have to think also, like if you can get those people, if I can get someone to come see me twice a week for $300 a week, that's a lot more than once a month for $300 a month. Um, so as you know, from a business perspective, if you can reach those people, it's it's definitely less stressful. They're generally better clients, though they can be more demanding because they expect more from you. But that's not always a bad thing. It just depends on the way they are demanding. <laughs> yeah, so Tim, you mentioned like Lance basically was training you from the past. So what's been your training experience, Lance? Like you've had basically persistent pain and what, what, what's been going on there? Yeah. Um, okay. So the short story is I started training in high school for ice hockey. Uh, I was playing ice hockey in Indiana and my coach was like, you're old enough now. You got to start showering after practice and you got to start working out. Uh, and I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, so I did that and I was, I just, I've always been a rule follower, I suppose. So I went to every training session that I was supposed to go to, which I don't think anybody else did. And I saw a lot of progress in the gym that was easily measurable because my weights kept going up. Um, and so I, I just loved it because it's that, that feedback loop, that dopamine hit of getting better. And that's, that's kind of like, that's the, I don't know, the behavior that I like to encourage is feeling like I'm getting better. Um, so I did that. Uh, hockey ended for me because I'm slow and weak uh, <laughs> and not tall. And um, I got into powerlifting because uh, it was just, you know, again, the weights were moving up. It sounded really awesome. But I didn't I didn't have any, you know, my original trainer was was great. Um, and he taught me a lot of things about fitness and uh, training, structuring programs, almost periodization even but he didn't really coach movement. Um, so I didn't have any movement foundation. And so I was trying to power lift with terrible movement, like <laughs> hardest back arch in your squat that you could possibly have. 
And I've got really shallow hip sockets. So my hip mobility is through the roof, but I need more muscular compression around the joint to stabilize it. So that shape of hip joint, I'm writing an article about this now, and this is why this is top of mind, but that shape of hip joint is very conducive to low force activities like yoga and very not conducive to high force activities like powerlifting because I don't have a lot of coverage. I can't disperse the force over a greater area. So I have higher pressure on the, the labrum and the joint itself. Um, and I, I kept powerlifting and I had crazy hip pain. It was super bad after my first meet, but I did a second one. And I just remember laying on the lawn at my friend's party at night and I'm allergic to grass. Like I never lay on lawns. And, <laughs> and I just, I was in so much pain. It was like 11 PM. And I thought, well, I probably shouldn't keep powerlifting. Um, and so it took me a couple of years messing around with stuff. I still like to lift hard because I, you know, you get that physiological response that makes you feel good. Uh, but <laughs> I, I would do that really hard for a week or two. And then I would have to basically not train for two weeks and it would just be this back and forth zigzag kind of thing. And that happened until uh, my buddy, Eric and I were doing a program that Bill Hartman wrote us. And it was, it was limited range of motion floor press, like bench press. Um, and it was a lot of upper body. I think I had one lower body day and that seemed to be the concoction that worked for my hips and worked for my upper body. I still had some setbacks because I was still doing a lot of heavy bilateral stuff, uh, which I later figured out. And now I do stuff differently, but um, that was kind of the turning point. And now it's, it's just, you know, I love getting stronger, but that's probably not what my body is good at. My body is a lot better at fitness, um, resisting fatigue, um, metabolic type stuff. So I've been doing more of that. So what's your current status with your hip? And then what is your last training session that you had look like? Uh, so I will lift or do cardio six days a week now, um, and then do a long walk on the seventh. Uh, my last session was yesterday and I did, or starting a uh, hypertrophy block. So sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, it was three sets of 10, three sets of 12, three sets of 15. Uh, yeah. And I did lower body. So I, I actually, my main exercise, well, my first exercise was a power thing, squat, jump, three sets of three. That's it. Uh, quick and done. Uh, and then I did a split squat, dumbbell split squat for three sets of 10. And then I did a rear foot elevated split squat for three sets of 12. And then I did a like, so I don't have, I work out at home and all I have are two 90 pound adjustable dumbbells and, uh, <laughs> my quad isolation exercise after that is like a pretend you're on a, a quad extension machine, like thigh extension thing. But instead of having a machine and weights, you invert your body, use gravity and put your feet on the couch instead. And so I'm just bending my knees and straightening my knees from there, just kind of like in a downward dog position. Um, it's not, it's not enough overload, but if I do enough reps, I can get pretty fatigued and sick of it. So <laughs> that's, awesome. that was kind of what my program looks like right now. I don't know. We're, we're experimenting with it because this is a little bit more weight and a little bit more resistance. Um, so I think around week three, I'm going to get pretty stiff and I might start having some more pain again. 
Um, but we'll take a deload then and give it one more week and then move on. Are you finding that it's, you know, your body just tolerates these lower loads, higher repetition, tempo lifting, like unilateral variations, like as, as your training just kind of skewed in that direction? Um, do you still occasionally touch heavy bilateral things? Um, I would say I, I do occasionally touch them, but I don't really since the pandemic started because I've been working out at home. I haven't been going to a gym. Um, and so, like I said, all I have are nineties. Um, and I can like, I have bands too. So what I'll do to get, I did some like heavy five by five stuff, um, five by five, five by three to five, we'll say. Um, and what I did was I like, I wrapped a pretty thin band around my back and then I grabbed the nineties and that was like the most overload that I could do for a floor press. Um, but for lower body stuff, like I just, I really don't mess with it too much. I, my goal is to not get too much weaker, but to not get stronger. Um, I just, my hips just, it is, it's weird because I never had symptoms during sessions. It was always after it's like very dull, broad ache after, um, not a lot of the sharp, like hip impingement kind of symptoms that you would, you know, you would think maybe labral tear or whatever. It was just this dull, just wear and tear. And I was like, this can't be good for me. Yeah. I remember, I mean, you and I would talk about this when you were training me because I, I, I had very similar symptoms and I've, I've gone the surgical route. You haven't, you seem to be managing it kind of fine just by being intelligent with what you do in the, I was going to call it weight room, but I suppose living room. <laughs> the, uh, the biggest shift was to say all that stuff that I want to do, I can't do anymore. But once I did that, um, I've, I've enjoyed training a lot more over the last two years because of that. Yeah. I think that's a big accomplishment right there. Cause I think a lot of people struggle that way and only think you can train one way and moving on from those specific strategies can be very difficult for people. How do you guys do with, okay. So in the weight room, usually, usually most people in the weight room, unless you're a power lifter or a crossfitter, don't come in with the goals of, I want to keep deadlifting till I'm 70. I know Michelle said that before. Um, but usually the goals are, I want to, I want to feel powerful. I want to feel strong. I want to have some muscle mass. I want to have some bone density. So the weight room is really, really cool because we can be very controlled in our exercise prescription and in our, in our execution, and we can get a lot of those effects while minimizing the downstream effects. But there's a whole host of things that people do like to do outside the gym, um, you know, sprinting, soccer, ultimate frisbee, hockey, that, those sorts of things where it might be a little bit more of a bitter pill to swallow to tell an individual that they can't do those things. Do we ever think that that's actually the case with those types of activities? Do we ever have these types of conversations with our clients? Um, that, so this is a great, very difficult problem. Um, great one to talk about. The, uh, the most recent example that I have is I have a client I'm still working with who will probably listen to this. Hello, you know who you are. Her ankles uh, are not that great. Um, and she wanted to run marathons. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it was just really bad for her. Like when she was, she was working out and she just she kept having setbacks 
and no amount of like she strength trained regularly. She did yoga mobility stuff regularly. It's not like she wasn't trying to take care of herself. It was just she's uh, she's like a more of a, you know, like force based athlete that doesn't have a lot of tendon elasticity. So every time she takes one of those steps, she's not conserving a lot of energy in the tendon. It's very muscular. She got a lot of force and she's had prior ankle injuries that it, I mean, like her, her left ankle is super loose. So for her, um, I, I decided to not do that because I don't want to be the type of person who says, when you really, somebody comes to me and says, I would really like to do this. I'm set on it. And then I would say, no, you shouldn't do that. Like that's, that's like the worst type of person in my mind. (laughs) And I don't want to be that, but she's done a couple and she's tried running again. And she's like, you know, I think my body just hates this. And I'm like, yes, let's, (laughs) let's steer into that. Let's find something else that your body's a little bit better at. Um, So to answer your question more succinctly, I try not to overstep my bounds, let's say. Michelle, any thoughts on that? I was just in like the worst case scenario situation where there's a guy with a leaf blower right outside of my window (laughs) and both of you just saw me like scrambling to get out and then my computer was dying and I had to plug it in. It was just terrible situations. I only heard like bits and pieces, but I totally agree with that. I'm kind of in a mindset right now where I've heard a lot of trainers who struggle with they can't fix a specific problem. And maybe this is the time to dive into your movement seminar that you have, but they're so focused on a one specific limitation that a trainer has that they let that kind of take over everything they do. And I think kind of Lance just mentioned, we have to kind of keep in mind all the things that they are capable of doing and give them some sort of wins in other directions possibly where they can see kind of that other side of what it's like to train successfully and sustainably. I, just one thing to add, Tim, you, you had used a bunch of team sports as an example. And I, I think, I think like, I think powerlifting is a scenario cause it's so far on the extreme. Um, and maybe a sprinting would be another one that I would just say, you know what? Hey, baby, don't do that. Uh, you can run uh, and you can run pretty fast, but don't run 95% fast, like run 70% fast and you'll stay young. You won't get hurt. Uh, but for like a team sport activity, there's so much multi-directional movement change, so much physiology change. Everything is generally really sub-maximal. So like my hips don't feel great and hockey is notoriously bad for hips. But now that I'm not practicing three days a week and playing two, I could do it once a week. Fine. Yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah, I, there I, a couple things here, just because I think this is a really important thing, both for me personally and because most of the people that that we train or treat are, are trying to solve this kind of problem. Um, Lance, I remember when you and I were working together, we we kind of, I think my expectation working with you initially was I want to deadlift 405 and I want my hips to not hurt. And, and pretty soon within that time frame of working together, you were like, look, man, we can really chase these range of motion adaptations. We can get you like the best PRI hip shifter in the history of hip shifters. We can try to make you feel as good as possible, or we can kind of like just let the tin out of the cage and try to manage this as best we can. 
And I think, you know, similar to when you said it was a really important decision for you to make when you're like, eh, I just don't do some shit anymore. And then life is better. I think for me, that realization of, well, I can live in this place of, I want to feel really good all the time, but I don't really want to be pushing the envelope with my body, or I do want to be pushing the envelope and I should expect to just feel a little shitty most of the time, like one or two out of, you know, one to two out of 10 of pain all the time. And I think this is a conversation I have probably multiple times a week with people that are similar like me, but five or 10 years, you know, before, you know, earlier in the continuum. There's, um, so I got so many ideas here uh, and I'm going to forget them all, but you're, I, I, I don't want us to sound like, I think I've gotten a reputation as a movement person, which then makes me a wimp. And plus I'm not. 275 with 6% body fat. So I'm also a wimp in that respect, but I like training hard still. And I, I, I even like lifting heavy. Like I don't do it very often just because it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense for me, but it's not that I don't want my clients to do powerlifting type stuff. It's not that I don't want them to build strength. It's just, if I'm good, if I'm a power lifter, most of my programs are like six reps or less, you know? Uh, and not my accessory work, but most of the main stuff is going to be that because those are the ranges that, that give your neuromuscular system adaptations to be stronger. It's not that I have to avoid that with myself or with other people, or even with you, Tim, it's just, I can't, I don't, I shouldn't be a power lifter because I need breaks from that. I need really broad periodization. And maybe, you know, maybe that is your powerlifting program, but anything you buy on the internet that's made for powerlifting is going to be bad for you because the focus is strength, heavy load, rigidity. It's not about building support systems, building like a foundation upon which you can then build strength and power. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's probably also about not being so rigid with our ideologies and especially with things like frequency of a specific type of training. Like you mentioned that your hips are a lot happier now that you're not playing hockey three times a week, but you get out and if memory serves, like you get out and skate once a week or twice a week. Yeah. I was before I moved to uh, the West coast. Fair enough. But I remember when, when after my second hip surgery, when you were training me and I really wanted to get back into running, I remember I pitched to you like, well, we'll start with like 20 or 25 miles a week, you know, I'll run four or five times a week. And you were like, fucking why? Like, and, and, and you just, we had this approach of like, one of my days was very, very slow. And we just built up the length of it. And then one of the days we just slowly worked down the pace that I was running. And I was like, oh, I, I, I didn't know it was allowed like that I could just run two days a week. And that kind of got me to a really, really good place where I was still doing the thing that I really loved because running's always been that thing um, without really sacrifice how, how I was feeling in a day to day. So I think to sort of put a pin in this uh, persistent chronic pain training thing, it's there's, there's always multiple ways to skin a cat. Probably being less rigid with ideology is really, really helpful for letting people continue to enjoy the things they love. Lance, any closing comments on that? No, it's just, you know, um, you, you want to support yourself, your own program, your body or your clients in the same way. Um, and try not to be too rigid with how you think about things, but we, we stereotype clients into buckets because it works. Um, so keep that in mind. Like a lot of things I would, most people who come to me from online for online training are 
so far in one direction that all I need to do is give them a really sound basic program. And a lot of this stuff goes away. Um, so I might urge you to revisit things like that, like uh, build endurance. Even if you want to get stronger, you need endurance. Yeah, and I now, think, so. go ahead, Michelle. No, it's okay. You just have like a very big biomechanical background and have been exposed to a lot of like big hitters in that realm and area. And when you say, you know, focus on in endurance, I think a lot of trainers will learn about those types of things. And this kind of give credit to you of being able to take very complex information, but still boil it down to make it very simple and also not lose sight of what we do as trainers. And that's physiological adaptations in terms of if you can improve someone's endurance, maybe pain related things or movement related things will actually clean up because of that. Yeah. You need endurance to maintain your good positions and you need endurance in very specific positions. So if we were talking about this earlier, but if you watch a whole set go on and it changes on rep 11, instead of rep, you know, one, if you hadn't watched the whole set, you wouldn't see it, but it's important to build that endurance at that very end point. It's telling you, Hey, these supporting muscles, this, these stabilizing muscles are, are limited right now. They are the thing that needs the endurance. So I cannot use my technique to compensate around them. I need to force myself to stay in this position, force that specific musculature, whatever it is, force it to burn because it's fatiguing. And I mean, I just, I stress the, you know, bodybuilding mindset to a lot of people like, yeah, your, your muscles should burn. It's really easy to hold your breath and just kind of pop around, but you're not really using muscle there. Um, and what are we, what are we doing then? I mean, you're just going to overload your joints. <laughs> not that, I mean, you, you need to be breath holding for really heavy stuff, but for the most part, if you're, especially if you're re-educating your movement, you got to feel the muscle doing it. So that conceptually, that's incredibly interesting to me. So you're saying that endurance training is useful because during like a 10 or 15 repetition set that can maybe get you to maintain like a stacked position or something like that for, for an increased amount of those repetitions. Yeah. I, I would say yes, but I would also say it will pertain to those heavy, long nine second long reps as well for heavy stuff. Do you find that something similar might happen with something like running? Like if we compare a very overextended sprinty running posture versus like a more distance oriented running posture, or you think those are entirely different things? Um, I'm not quite seeing exactly how you're trying to tie them together. To me, they are different things and they will require different things. A lot of it will come back to, am I periodizing appropriately? Like, am I okay, still so doing low intensity stuff? In the, for okay. Period? In the case that you were discussing, you're more interested in specific local muscle endurance so that we don't get really weirdly fatigued and just completely break down in terms of position while we're doing weight room activities. Yeah. 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 Okay. And that could work for running too, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's, there's certain theories floating around. Like, um, one of the big reasons that you see like the, the classic overextended running position is like either an attempt to maintain power production when everything is gassed out, um, or just an attempt to like blow open the anterior thorax and 
abdomen and like try to get airflow in. And these are, these are breakdowns because your body's just kind of trying to survive and do the task. But if we improve the specific endurance of that position, then maybe we get a higher quality output. I, I would agree with those, but I would, I would simplify it even more in that you're, you're compromising the position because it makes it feel less shitty. Like it's not burning quite as much. It's not, it doesn't feel quite as hard to do it that way. Like to arch on a, on a run or whatever. Cause I can, I can hang on these passive restraints that don't require ATP and they don't require glycolysis and they don't require, you know, lactate fermentation. Um, and so you don't get hydrogen ion build up, build up. You don't get fatigue build up that needs to be dealt with, but you do, but you know, not to the same extent. Would you, and not to make this again, not to make this podcast about running, because I know that is not the thing that you are expert in, but um, would you say then that for people that are performance oriented with something like running, that it then becomes kind of this push and pull this trying to find this middle ground between these strategies that are very joint and connective tissue demanding versus muscularly demanding? Yes, I think that's fair. And I think movement is, is running is just movement. So we can talk about running. That's fine, Tim. <laughs> that's all I have to do. That's his whole goal. So keeping, keeping the biomechanical train rolling, then um, you have a new product that you rolled out a month or two ago, the movement seminar, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've done, um, I had originally started, this was right before the pandemic. I had a couple coaches or I had one in particular walk up to me and say, you know, man, I've been, I've been reading up about PRI and I think I'm ready to, it, I think I'm bought in. He'd been watching me coach for like six or eight months or something like that. And he was like, I think I want to know why you're doing what you're doing. Cause it's weird, but it seems, you seem confident with it. <laughs> so um, what I did is I invited him and a couple other coaches over to our uh, I would say apartment, but I guess it was a mobile home uh, in Mountain View, California. And we just hung out once a week for two hours or whatever. Um, and we talked about stuff and it helped me kind of refine this process. And it became an online forum, a forum that's really only active or working for 30 days at a time. And I, I wrote up these thought provoking, hopefully thought provoking prompts that will help you um, the whole premise is you, you have a movement problem. It might be for yourself. Uh, usually it's for a client because this, this whole thing works better if you can take pictures or videos of people. Uh, so you got some movement problem that needs to be addressed. I'm going to give you three, six, nine, 12, 12 different questions that make you think really deeply about this problem. Like Tim, you and I used to on our phone calls and just really dive into it. Identify what's going on. Uh, talk about the bony kinematics of movement, um, talk about the arthro kinematics of the joints, and then talk about what muscle activity is at play here and talk about how can we diagnose this? How can we be pretty sure? Because I don't always trust my eye, especially now that I'm online. I don't always trust my eye. So I want some other, some sort of tests that can tell me, hey, is my, is my, quote, treatment is my advice that I'm giving to this client. Is it working or is it, does it just kind of like seem okay? Um, um, the, the premise, I guess, is to help you see all the details of movement and then help you figure out what details matter. So basically you're trying to help trainers 
solve a specific problem? The, the way it's designed is there's one specific problem. Um, I, you know, I had a couple people try to do multiple problems. It's a lot of work, um, but it's a good way to do it. Uh, you could, you know, I've had a couple people retake it as well uh, because the way it's designed, you can just, you can, you go through the whole thing and now you realize, oh my God, I know nothing. And then you want to do it again because <laughs> you've got other problems, other clients with other problems that need to be fixed still. <laughs> Well, it makes perfect sense. And one of the things I've definitely struggled with since I started my own business is being, I mean, I'm very lucky where I can have friends and have a conversation with them, but I don't have like a group of colleagues where I can really problem solve with them and they can see what I'm dealing with in front of me and then be able to kind of have a back and forth with it. That That's something I like really struggle with. And I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. The, so there's three assignments each week and it's on a forum for the most part. So you start by kind of like writing out your thoughts. Um, and that's a bit of my bias because I, I think better when I write something out. Um, and I try to force people to write clearly and well um, because everybody has to read it, right? It's, it's kind of rude to just mind dump everything because everyone's going to have to read it and help you through it. So if you can... If you can refine how you write it through the week, and then at the end of the week, the way it's structured is everyone meets for a call. That could be one, two, three hours, whatever, um, depending on how much time you need to discuss your problems. But that's when you can really take all of those thoughts that you've pretty much ironed out and really see in, in real time with your, your people on your call, like, does this make sense? Um, is this going to be helpful? And should I take this course of action next? So this is, uh, go ahead, Michelle. No, so then do they go apply the information and maybe what people suggested and they come back and give some feedback about how it went? Yeah, yeah, you, uh, that happens pretty frequently, yeah. Okay. So so this, this happens over a month. How many, how many coaches do you have per seminar? I haven't found a limit yet. Um, it depends on how much help I can get. I have some people who've done it already that I trust that I, I use as uh, coaches to help me out. Um, helping, you know, read other people's posts, comment, offer different advice. This last one I had, it was probably the, the best round. I, I mean, sorry to the other rounds. You guys were great too. But the best <laughs> round was this previous round because um, everyone was just really engaged. Um, they did all the assignments, they communicated as best they could with their schedule, even though they're super busy. Um, and they were, they were definitely tired at the end, but a lot of, I think, I think they left feeling, you know, that little bit of confusion, like I learned something, but a little bit of, okay, I'm, I'm ready for the next thing though. I need maybe a week off. <laughs> <laughs> are, are they bringing in their movement problems or do you give all of them the same sample movement problem? They're bringing it in their own. Uh, okay. And then do they, does everyone attempt to solve everyone's like that sort of thing? You, your responsibility is only to your client, you know, the, the one that you're trying to solve. Um, but everybody does try to offer advice. Um, maybe not, you know, I'm not going to, take it upon myself to solve Tim's squat shift problem. 
Um, but I am going to say that one thing that you're seeing there, I don't think you're seeing that. I think you're seeing something else or um, that one thing you're going to do. I don't think it's going to test what you want to test. It's really cool. <laughs> it's it very really different. Cool. I mean, we all know we're being kind of flooded with continuing education stuff online. And a lot of people never finish those courses because it's just so, you know, you go through content, you kind of do it on your own. But this is kind of like forces people to one, bring in their own problem and really have motivation to solve it. And then also be accountable through other people as well. You, you learn, you know, you have an assignment essentially every night for a month. Um, and so you're always, I, I just, in my experience with people who make behavior change, the, the ones who actually make the change, think about it all the time. So you have an assignment every day. You're thinking about this problem every day. And one of your lucky clients is going to get a great training experience because you are <laughs> taking it upon yourself to make their life better for a month, every day for a month. It, it seems to work out really well. So I think just for the benefit of our listener, would you mind giving like very briefly just an example of a movement problem and an example of a, a solution that one of your people has generated recently? Sure. Um, so I, we had one guy who predominantly trains in groups. So that was, you know, a whole restriction that had to be addressed as well. Uh, but he had a guy in there. He, he was just, he picked him. He looked at his squat. He said, something looks wrong there. <laughs> and he, he took a picture and we kind of went off the picture and he had like, a, he had a frontal plane shift of the hips to the left, but he had a transverse plane shift of the hips to the right. And if you looked up, the, the hips, I think, were a bit of a red herring because if you looked up, you saw the, the shoulders and the head leaning over to the right. And I was like, well, okay, so if I lean the shoulders to the right, what happens to the hips? Either, either, the, either they stay still and I lose my balance and I fall over to the right, or <laughs> the real world, I maintain my balance by shifting my hips to the left, keep my center of mass between my feet, right? Um, so we had, to, we had to diagnose that. Um, he was using... Mostly just, and this is, this is how I do most of my coaching, but he was using the squat predominantly as his test. So if I gave him something, does the squat look a little bit better? Because it was, I mean, it wasn't too egregious, but it was, you know, drastic enough to where you could see if something was wrong. Uh, so he just, he set the camera up he said, okay, well, um, I think based on this problem, He's got a left hip shift, so he needs to turn on his left glute. And then I said, well, if he's turning his hips to the right, he probably already has a short left glute. And we need to be more specific about why certain muscles are tight. Um, so uh, he, he, we, we came up with nine different things that he can do. Um, <laughs> hi, Molly. <laughs> nine different things that we can do, all based on what... so if you're thinking about this without the client in front of you, and if you've never done it before, it's really helpful to come up with your progressions and regressions, like a whole scale of things that you can give to someone before you see them. Now, you know, we've all coached for a decade and we we're kind of like movement people. So we can think about these things right away, but when you're first learning it, you got to kind of lay all these things out. So you know how your brain's going to think 
And if I put you, you know, I got a scale from one to nine from most, or least complex to most complex. If I put you at number five and you can't do it, well, then I got to, I got to know where to go next. I got to know what to try next. So I go back to number four, go back to number three. If you do number five and you suck at it, I might just go right to number one. Right. Um, and that, that might be me laying down. Somebody's propping my foot up with a pillow. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's lavender in the air. It's, you know, super relaxing, but if you give them number five, or, and they, they smash it, then, hey, maybe I'll just do a squat and give you the cue. If it's, if it's a hip shift, I, I don't know that I really do that, but that would just be an example of walking through progressions and regressions. So, so you have basically like, like least invasive or like least uh, most exercisey to most resetty kind of kind of progression when you're thinking about movement interventions to try to solve a movement problem? You, you could say it that way. Um, I would, I try to phrase it like um, most likely to succeed versus most likely to be messed up. Okay. Do you ever solve a movement problem with a fitness problem? Yeah, totally. That's in my article that I've been working on for now 50 work hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> so funny. Um, I hope it's out in time for us to put it in the show notes. <laughs> it's so I, I, I'm back and forth on whether or not this is a good strategy for, for my business or not, because it's taken so long and surely it's not going to pay for itself. But I wrote this article recently about quad stretches and it put up um, like the whole premise was if somebody's looking for quad stretches, I should give them quad stretches, but I should also tell them, I should use my expertise, my years of experience to tell them, this is why I'm probably not using them. And this is what I'm doing instead. Um, so it's like 20,000 words and it's way too much. And I basically did the same thing for butt wink when you squat, like when your hips tuck under and your low backgrounds, um, which is essentially, so it's, it's phrased as a butt wink article, but it's essentially a hip mobility article. And so we talk about different shapes of hip joints and how they might respond to stuff like that. But one of the, one of the things that can happen for something like that is like we were talking about before with running, if I start to get tired and I stick my chest up and I arch my back, I'm doing that because I don't have the endurance to keep doing what I was doing. That was more fluid more relaxed. Um, and that can happen in squatting as well. If I do 10 reps and then on the 11th, I start to arch my, my chest up because I need to conserve some energy. Well, <laughs> the, the thing that makes you wink your butt is you overextend your thoracic spine. So, uh, you, it's essentially a reversal of the spinal curve and that's why it's so heinous. It's like, you're, you're doing everything that the spine was not made to do, <laughs> Um, yeah, and people are so drawn to these, the new biomechanic concepts. It's like sexy, right? But I think, you know, getting back to the things we're kind of forgetting about is a little bit more sexy these days to me in terms of like, what's all, what's wrong with all the stuff that we learned before in terms of like foundations of fitness and physiology? Like, why have we lost that or not, or don't utilize it or don't think it's good enough? We just get so lost in these movement problems that I love how you're kind of describing some points of intervention can be, oh, can we get back to fitness qualities and maybe improving them as a solution? Knee, knee valgus and varus are still problems, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, loaded spinal flexion is still probably not a good idea. 
you know it most people in my opinion don't really need a super specific warm-up though there's a place for that and if you need that you should go talk to tim uh, <laughs> to get yes. to get rehab um, but I think a lot of people just need somebody to sit there with a whip and every time you mess up, they just need to say, no, 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 you got to fix uh, this. Right. Well, people now are really attracted to your services. <laughs> That's the fourth bucket that he didn't mention. <laughs> the people that like the, wait, so I, I, I think, I just think this is, this is so interesting because it's, there's so many people out there trying to solve movement problems that think that. You know, maybe they've taken a PRI course. Maybe they're interested in taking PRI course. Maybe they've attempted to attend Bill Hartman's intensive, where they think that the uh, the only and or best way to solve a movement problem is with an incredibly specific reset or like laying down on the ground, something like that. So I think it's this is a really valuable discussion for people to hear that conditioning can be a reset uh, or conditioning can can help movement quality. Local muscular endurance can help movement quality. A cue can help movement quality. Maybe certain resets, maybe other modalities. Yeah, maybe maybe you just need to do less bilateral work. Like that's a big deal for a lot of people Ooh, that I get from, point. from PTs, yeah. Look how yeah. fired up Michelle is right now. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I am so fired up. I have like, I have, I have some rules that I follow. It's like, well, can you take a typical... Uh, bilateral lift and follow through rules. Can you make it an offset? Can you alternate the grip? And then can you maybe alternate like the rep scheme in terms of, you know, instead of two arms, making it opposite. Um, And those, those rules usually help people program for, for things that you're talking about. You, you can, you can throw in stuff like that and it, it just, it breaks the loop. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if I do pull-ups, I'm supposed to do pull-ups, but if I say, let's do pull-ups with an, a mixed grip and maybe let's alternate the grip, um, on, on each set or even on each rep, I just gave to a guy, then you break this cycle of, this is what I expect the pull-up to be. And you mm. inherently have to be a little bit looser. Um, so that can be, can be good. The biggest thing to overcome is that people don't know how good they are because they're doing a weird variation of stuff. Um, so if you have somebody like I, I have a guy who he lost a lot of weight before he, he came and worked with me, but now he's gotten a lot stronger and everything. He's down over a hundred pounds and he's doing super well and he's kept it off for months now. And he started to get some, as he started training more, he started to get some elbow problems and some knee problems. So I, I tried helping him out a little bit. I eventually referred him to a PT friend of mine in the area. Um, actually, no, it's on zoom. And he, he is doing much better, but now the PT recommended, you know, he's super stiff in his thorax. He should probably not do anything bilateral. He should probably load the weights differently. So I've got him doing all sorts of weird stuff. Like he's doing an alternating floor press instead of a bilateral floor press, but one weight is 50 pounds and one weight is 70 pounds. It's like that. I mean, that's a lot of instability that you're introducing and you can like, it's still hard. It's hard to do. Uh, mm-hmm. You can still get muscle gain out of that, but he's been really successful with that because he doesn't care what other people think. Um, he just wants to know that he's getting better. He doesn't want his body to hurt. He's not trying to compare himself to other people. Whereas if you tried to give that to me, I'd be like, well, then how will I know if I'm out benching all of my clients, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. That's that's just a big hurdle to overcome. So that that for for a scenario like that, you may it may have to be more of a psychological fix and gradually ease into uh, some of the weird. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's a personal uh, skill of being able to talk people through that as well. For sure. I, I so was going to say, yeah, for, for just just really really quickly, and then we will get to the business stuff. Um, for a incredibly actionable takeaway from this conversation uh, that just briefly got touched on, the alternating mix grip pull-ups are fantastic. And I, I'm, I'm going to give one of you credit for exposing me to that. I honestly don't remember which one, but it's, it's how I train all of my pull-ups. I give that all the damn time. And it's such an easy way. And it's sort of, sort of apropos to what you guys were just discussing it's it looks and feels enough like a pull-up without being exactly like the pull-up that they've been doing for 20 years yeah tim i remember us being at the gym and we would mess around with that we would even mess around with our leg position and to create some more rotation or um just alternating pattern at the hips and it's a much more challenging position to be able to because you have the strength to be able to do it but can we just add something another component with that there's a similar tweak that I've been using for split squats or lunges that I just, I have people turn toward the front light, like it turn your shoulders and it just, it doesn't necessarily stay there, but you do do it for every rep. And even if it's a heavy set, I think that it's funny because <laughs> you would, when you say that to somebody who hasn't, uh, hasn't worked with you, it doesn't know that you're batshit crazy. Um, you, you say they're like, why would I, why would I twist my body while I'm doing, shouldn't I be symmetrical when I do this? And then you, you just say, well, yeah, but when you do it on the other side, you're super twisted the other way. So why does this matter? Like, <laughs> we're just trying to even you out. And that, that was actually a weird thing for me to realize. But then I was like, you know, it, it, I mean, if you're going to twist that way and you're fine for the most part, why not twist the other way too? Yeah, even the Jefferson holds of um, alternating the grip on a dumbbell or a kettlebell in the split squat, it's almost like it's doing that for you just by having an alternating grip on the dumbbells. For sure, for sure. Unless you're a sicko in the head and you're trying to be bilateral while you unilateral rotate yourself and then you get really messed up. And that's what I meant when we talked earlier about Tim and myself training ourselves, when you think really hard, you mix all these things together and you stop going with what feels right. Uh, and no one, no one was better at overloading their left hip than me for about a five year span. <laughs> I can concur. Yeah. <laughs> so Lance, I've been, I've been pretty patient for the, you know, for the last, I don't know, 45 minutes we've been chatting, but, uh, my sole interest is having you talk about your other interests. You're like pretty much like the jack of all trades here. Um, can you talk a little bit? So, you know, as trainers and physical therapists, we can't help people unless we have people to help. And I think we all struggle, especially when we've gone through academia in terms of we only really learn subject matters that apply in the weight room that we have difficulty marketing ourselves and attracting new clients and getting people to our services. And can, can you tell people a little bit about what you do kind of behind the scenes? So for those who don't know, I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> I have glasses on all the time, all the time. I almost sleep with them. Um, Your favorite store is Staples. 
Yeah, exactly. It used to be. Now I've I've upgraded from pleb level to uh, something a little fancier. I'm kidding. Um, Staples is great. You should sponsor this podcast, Staples. Um, so, what what I when I was young, I I thought I was going to go into computers as a profession. Um, I had I I liked math. I was pretty good at math, and all of my I swear to you, not all of my professors, or I guess they're teachers when you're in fifth grade, but uh, they, I had a lot of teachers say, you're going to be an engineer when you grow up. And I didn't know what that meant at all. Um, And my parents laughed about it, but I I realized it later on. And when I was getting into college, I was like, I should go into computer engineering because I like computers. I had tried to make websites when my computer was running Windows 95, like we, it was a long time ago. I had a book that I got from the library on HTML and CSS, and I just messed around with it. So I've been working very uh, sparingly on websites for 20 plus years now. Um, but when I got to college, I did computer engineering and I did not apply myself in college, I would say. That's a nice way to put it, that I was lazy. Uh, and I didn't do very well in calculus because calculus is a different kind of math. Uh, it's not like algebra. I was fine with algebra, but calculus, ooh. And then I went to calculus two. And since I didn't learn anything in calculus one, I did really badly in calculus two. So I ended up switching majors to exercise science, kinesiology, and I kind of like forgot about it all. I learned a lot about the human body for the next 10 years. And Over the last three or four years, I've gotten really into websites and stuff. It helped having my own because I could experiment on my own website, lancekoike.com, like my personal one. Um, And I just, you know, I kept doing it and it kept getting really interesting. So I was like, maybe I should learn more. So I started to learn Python and Python's totally different than my website. So I, I had to make other websites to play around with it. And so I started to think, okay, well, now that I have this skill set, what can I do to streamline some things? Um, And so you get in this trap of, I want to build stuff because stuff is cool and it's fun to build stuff and solve problems and whatever. But what I tended to do and still tend to do, I guess this is just human nature for myself at least, but I tend to solve problems that don't need solving. So make something that nobody's going to use, for example. Um, And I, I've gotten better about that, but what it did for me was it said, okay, well, if I'm going to peruse (laughs) software engineering, I need to have a business perspective because it's really easy to just sink a bunch of money into, you know, an app, for example. Um, But if you don't know how that app is ever going to pay for itself, then it doesn't make any sense. So uh, I think it was three years ago, I took a Seth Godin's Alt MBA, which is 30 days, and it's a forum online, and you have a, a Slack channel, and you communicate with people. It's a lot more intensive than the movement seminar that I made later on, um, but I had three calls with a group of people that rotated every week. I got to meet a lot of other people who are kind of like me, kind of like, what should I work on next? Uh, Does this business work? Should I be making a different decision? 
it's really good for those people who are in like transition stages in their lives. I, if you're, if you're like that and you feel like that describes you, I would highly recommend it though. It's, it's not cheap. It's about four grand. Um, it's, it, it was definitely transformative though. I still talk to one of my, uh, um, cohort people every month and it's great to bounce ideas off of her. Um, and that just, that got me thinking more seriously about business. Business is finances, business is profit, business is marketing. How do I get the word out? And it's easy. It was very, um, it was very relieving to do that because I started to think of marketing differently. Before when I would write marketing stuff, it would be the worst stuff that everybody knows is marketing and it sucks to read. It's like, oh my God, this is filthy. I feel dirty. I need a shower after reading this. And what it became was, who am I talking to and how can I help them? And that to me is much more motivating. Um, it's easier to do my work now when I think about business development that way. Um, and it turned to, so I have a, a friend who's a PT in uh, the Bay Area. She just moved into a new location, Ashley Summers, summerspt.com. You should check it out. I made her a website with her and we, we the, the way that I decided that it needed to be made is we needed to be collaborative. I needed to know what she wanted to say, what kind of services she wanted to offer, what kind of people she wanted to help. And I needed her to lay out in her voice, essentially what it is that she wanted to say. And then the, the reason that you pay me is because one, I can make a website and two, I can say, okay, well, if you say that, you're gonna alienate a lot of people. So let's say it this way instead. Um, and I think uh, people have, appreciated my, my background in fitness. Most of my clients are like fitness or health professionals. So they've appreciated that, you know, I have a master's degree in anatomy, but I know how to put stuff on a website and make it look clean and make the search engines not hate it, you know? So basically you're the guy people kind of seek out to help them behind the scenes with the things that they're probably pretty bad at. That is, that is the thing. Like if, for example, if we are marketing for Michelle, I can't do all of Michelle's work because if you see Lance, but I'm talking about Michelle, it doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm marketing Michelle, but there are things that Lance can do that are not client facing, or, you know, maybe they are, and I could pretend like I'm you and, you know, you could tweak the site. So, you know, for example, a lot of this comes back to, are you organized enough? I have So let's say I have another example. Um, I have a good friend. I don't know if I should name him. I'm going to name him anyway. His name is Zach Couples. Uh, he, he's, he's got a great website. He puts out a ton of great stuff on movement. Um, ZachCouples.com. You should definitely check it out. And you should go to his seminar as well because you don't have enough continuing ed to go to. Uh, do that after you go to the movement seminar though. Maybe, no, maybe do his oh. first. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, do, do whatever feels right. So what a friend and I worked together on his website and Zach has built a really successful business and he has people coming in. He's done the marketing really well. He's put the work in, um, but to make his life easier since he didn't have a Lance behind the scenes or some other nondescript nerd behind the scene. Um, he has, 
he has installed a bunch of things on his website that made it run really slow. And eventually it was hacked. Um, and that has become a long project of let's see how we can get reorganized. How can we take all the stuff that you've already done and put it in a digestible way? If I just keep pumping posts into a website, eventually those go away. They get pushed from the top of the you know front page, the, the feed reader or whatever, and you never find them again, unless you, you've worked really hard to organize your thoughts, organize the structure of your site to make it more user-friendly so that if somebody comes to your site and they find, you know, Michelle maybe wrote this great article about uh, twisting in the lunge or whatever. And then at the end of that, they say, read more posts about lunges. And you've happened to write four other posts that are equally as good, if not better about lunges. And that person clicks that next article and then you, they read that one and they love it and you got a fan for life. All that comes back to structure. So for as someone, you can hear me. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for, for someone that is as technologically inclined as you, who's I mean, clearly more expert in website design than probably anybody listening to this podcast, and certainly myself, Michelle, um, you are notoriously uh, absent or infrequent with posting on social media. And again, this does not need to be a, a big discussion with your social media habits, but how do you think about websites versus social media? I know a lot of people just getting started as trainers now, people in their early to mid twenties kind of feel like Instagram is the, is the best and or only way to promote themselves. So thoughts. You, if you're going to get new clients, you've got to be exposed to them somehow. Um, so if we go back to an overarching theme of marketing you have to have something that sets yourself apart from the other people. For me, that was generally my main referral source was other professionals. Um, specifically, I've got a PT who says, I'm busy. I ain't got time to do training on these PT clients here, Lance. You do training on these PT clients. When I was in person, I had a lot of coaches nearby who would, who would say, essentially, I don't have the means to work with this person or I can't fix this problem and I'm comfortable that you'll be able to treat them, um, you know, well and help them fix their own problems. Um, and so I would get referrals from other clients that way. And that's kind of what set me apart. Now, the way that I was reaching those people is word of mouth. And that is, that is something that every trainer should and can use. Um, social media is not a bad way to expose yourself to other people, there, there are just you know nuances to it. So social media algorithms all play a little bit differently, but they're all based on, is this shocking enough to warrant uh, me clicking on it or looking, you know, stop scrolling so that I can watch the video or stop scrolling so that I can read the post or sharing it. Um, so if it's not it might be really helpful. Somebody might read something and think, man, that was great, and then not share it. And it might be good for the universe to have that out there, but if they don't share it, social media doesn't know if it's good or not. Um, so you have, to, you have to keep that in mind. You also have to keep in mind that it's much better to be really good at something 
than to be okay at everything because you have a, an exponential curve, right? As I, if I'm the top 10 of, you know, top 10% of social media people, uh, Instagram is going to keep showing me to those people. If I'm inactive for two weeks, it's going to say, okay, well, this person doesn't post anymore. So let's stop showing their stuff to people when they do post again. Um, so you're, you're at the, the whims of these other companies. I, I go back and forth on how to do it. I think the, I think one thing that most people in our situations should be doing is bringing people back to, if not their own website, at least a like mailing list, just a list of people who want to hear from you and you email them every week or every month or something. And you just, you know, you start to build this relationship. Then later on, if you do want to, you know, if you want to write a program, sell it online, you have a list of people that you can sell it to. And those people already know you, they already like you, they, they open your emails, you know, you know, roughly half of them will or so. Um, and that can be a good way. But if you try to sell products on Instagram, it's really hard unless you're paying for ads. Okay. So I, I guess behind your decision to not leverage social media would be a lot of the things that you had just discussed that you feel that your talents are best served with optimizing word of mouth referrals, blog posts, things that are going to be a little bit more evergreen than something ephemeral than an Instagram post, which may or may not get traction depending on how provocative it is. Evergreen is kind of like the, the way that I would put it. So what I'm working on right now is considered content marketing. I'm writing content that is shareable and very thorough so that hopefully people will link to it on their own websites. Hopefully people will send it to their, their friends if they found it helpful. Um, I, I won't reach people unless that happens. So my tactic there is a long and slow one, but the idea is that Hopefully somebody's going to search for, you know, I told you about my quad stretches article. Hopefully someone searches for quad stretches and they see my article and they say, huh, well, I thought I wanted quad stretches, but this article says that I don't need them. So why let me click on that one. And then hopefully they'll, they'll start reading and they'll, I'll get their attention somehow and they'll keep going. And that's how I will meet someone new. You get exposed to a lot more people. If you're really good at social media, um, those those people are just harder to convert because it, your, your aim is less specific, that the target is more ephemeral. I think that's been one of the biggest things for me is making it very clear who I'm talking to and staying focused with that. Instead, I was kind of just talking to everyone, which means I'm talking to no one probably. <laughs> that's a good way. I mean, that's a good way to say it. And, and it's, it's easy to understand that you need to talk to someone specific. It's hard to know who that is and specifically mm -hmm. what, what makes them them and unique. Um, and so you, you get a lot of practice when you start posting stuff and you just, you got to look at your, your analytics. You got to see what is resonating with the people 
that what part of my tone and the topics that I discuss do people like hearing about? And for me, like I'm, tr I'm trying to work with more businesses because I, I find it super fulfilling and I like working on computers and stuff, but people generally resonate, not, not with, you know, I've had a moderately successful entrepreneurial venture that is me training people. They resonate with, this is a lot about movement. Why are you talking about so many specific anatomy terms? Um, maybe I should learn more about this. So I, I keep writing stuff like that because it seems to be resonating with people. Maybe this is an unfairly broad question to ask, but if you were to kind of like recreate a little clone Lance that got decanted at age 22 or 23, lived in a location with no personal connections, but wanted to, let's say, grow a remote personal training business, what would the first three to nine months of that strategy be knowing what you know now? How would you try to solve that problem? Um, as I was 20 to 23, the, the thing that I would probably do is I would do the content marketing that I'm talking about right now. I don't think that would be the most beneficial thing that I could do. I think the most beneficial thing that I could do would be to talk to my friends who are in PT school and just graduated PT school and say, Hey, if you have any clients that need training, send them my way. I'd love to work with them. And I'll give you money. <laughs> so you would go, you would go uh, word of, like word of mouth initially content as, as more of a long-term slow burn type play. So a social media based strategy would not even be in the top two for now, even if you were starting completely cold. I don't, I don't think, well, right now, um, if I imagine that I'm 23 right now, it's very, social media is much more competitive than it was when I was actually 23 eight years ago, math, something. Um, <laughs> um, so it would be less beneficial for me because I would inherently be more like everything that's out there. Um, the reason that I don't do social media is, I guess, twofold. One, I think it's really distracting. I really like doing deep work where I'm super focused on something. I find that very rewarding. And I can't do that if I'm pandering to social media. But two, it's mostly just like, I am not a very sensationalist personality. Like I'm super moderate. Um, and when I share something on social media, it's inherently not that interesting. It's, you know, I like teaching stuff, but I don't think social media is really where my, where my strengths lie. So I decided that it would make more sense if I made some really, really thorough, comprehensive pieces about a topic that I can teach. And I've got a handful of those that have done pretty well. Um, as long as <laughs> I, they'll do super well, as long as somebody famous shares them. <laughs> and and I, if I write something that's superficial, uh, nobody famous is going to share them because it's inherently more like everything else that's out there already. I keep coming back to that. I, sorry for the repetition, but that's the idea. I'm trying to make something that stands out. And, and not that you would be thinking about this when you were 22, but it's something I definitely think about now as yes, things may be beneficial, but when you get a little bit older, I think, or maybe we're all thinking this now, it's also, it has to match your lifestyle choices. 
And I think get diving into social media, there's a huge lifestyle decision or change that would be created from that decision. You, um, I mean, there's, there's multiple ways you can do it. You could, you could hire somebody else to kind of do it for you. If they like doing that, um, you lose some of the personality parts of it. So I, I, I don't want to just say all social media is bad, but for me, it's, it's too much work with not enough payoff right now. Fair enough. What do you think some of the biggest misconceptions with, you know, non-social media ways to promote your business and kind of gaining traction as a, a trainer who's trying to, you know, make this their lifestyle income and support themselves? The biggest misconception is that people don't understand how important word of mouth referral is. Um, if I get, you know, I, we talked about this uh, maybe an hour ago, but if I get one client who sees me twice a week and pays me $300 a week, that's a lot of money. Like that's, that's a, that's a very significant income boost. Um, so if I, if I sell a hundred books for $30, like there's no comparison. <laughs> like that sale is those hundred books don't recur. Um, so I don't continuously offer this, this um, service that I'm getting and therefore I'm not continuously uh, compensated for that work. Um, the, the biggest thing is just underappreciating how big an impact that can actually have. You have, to, you have to think about the recurring income and think about how long in general your clients stay on. Even so I've got levels of it, right? So I have a couple programs that I just sell one-off programs um, that are already made. You can go buy them right away at mastering.fitness, which is a weird domain name, but there's no.com. It's just .fitness, mastering.fitness. Um, and if you buy that, like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I make a hundred bucks or whatever, depending on the, the one that you, you buy, but uh, <laughs> then it's over. And then, then I have to convince you to buy the next one, right? Whereas uh, the next level of that is what Tim used to do. So you, you buy, you know, $300 a month, programming and I'll talk to you on email, but we won't have anything live. I call it asynchronous because you can send a message whenever and I'll reply whenever I can. It just kind of works that way. Um, those people generally don't last as long as clients. Tim lasted a really long time because he's very dedicated um, and we had good times on our calls. But, you know, somebody might last a year. Most people last three months. Um, mm -hmm. Some people last four years, you know. Um, but even then it's like, that's 300 bucks a month. Whereas again, if I'm making 300 bucks a week and I see that person all the time. So now they are committed to me. They are, they are, um, tied to our successes are tied together. That person is a paying me more and B less likely to quit. So my retention is higher. The, the income generated from something like that is just exponentially higher. Mm -hmm. You, you got to be able to remember that. Oh, I feel smarter already. <laughs> well, how can people get in contact with you? And, you know, if they want to learn more about, you know, starting out, developing, growing online, maybe um, some site uh, help with their website, how, how can they contact you? 
Uh, just I have a contact page or you can send me an email at maybe I shouldn't put this. I should put this out there. Lance at LanceGoyke.com. Uh, it's L-A-N-C-E-G-O-Y-K-E. LanceGoyke.com. Um, you can check out my website. I don't have a whole lot. You know, like I said, most of it's on movement stuff. But if you want to talk about your specific scenario, I'd be happy to. You know, I don't have a whole lot of articles built out for you, but I'd be happy to chat through it. See if we can come up with a nice, uh, I, I want to say frugal solution, but maybe you don't want a frugal solution. Maybe that's just me. Normally that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, see, help you come up with whatever will work the best for what you need. I texted Mike Camperini this morning. Like, do you have a website? Cause I was like trying to set up our show notes and uh, he goes, no. And I was like, that is so embarrassing. Like, doesn't Lance live right down the street? Like, what are you doing? But so, so th- that's actually a good uh, case to talk about um, because you don't, you don't necessarily need it if you have enough word of mouth or you have the right clients, right? Uh, you know, if, if you only train one person and they pay you 500 grand a year, that's fine. Like you're, you don't need to do anything else. You don't need a website for that person because they're just going to call your cell phone at 1230 in the morning. Right. Um, for Mike, he's, he's doing PT. He's mm-hmm. got clients. He's, he, I mean, he doesn't necessarily need anymore and not that he doesn't want anymore and not that, you know, he definitely deserves them. He's a good practitioner. Um, yes, yes. And you're not selling anything online. Um, yes, like you mentioned, he has a very big like network for word of mouth. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll, I'll be if, easy on him next time I talk to him. But it, you know, if he wanted to start selling a you know baseball preparation program and and get clients out of thin air, that would be the logical next step. But uh, up until then, he's going to maximize that word of mouth, and he's probably going to do okay. After speaking with him for a bit yesterday, I think he's looking to pivot into a delicatessen in northern New Jersey still. That's plan A. <laughs> we'll we'll have to talk to him and tell him we spent the last 10 minutes of the podcast like <laughs> talking about him. Uh, Mr. Lance Goyke, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to sit down and chat with us. Thank you both for having me. This was really fun. My face is tired from smiling, but it's great. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lance. (laughs) Thank you, listener, for listening as well. Have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.